Would you please remain standing now just for a moment. Uh, Take your Bibles if you have them and turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Our sermon text this morning is Matthew 12 verses 15 to 21 and that's what we're going to read together now. Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you please be seated? I think if there was anything that I might possibly be worthy of entering a local Hall of Fame, the, the Prattville Hall of Fame, maybe, maybe the Prattville Intermediate School Hall of Fame, it would be uh, for getting the most notes home from school for talking in class, maybe for chewing gum in class. Um, and I remember one particular moment, I've probably shared this story with you before. Um, I was in fifth grade. I'd gotten yet another note home for talking in class. And I knew that it had gotten to the point that it was so many that I was sure to get some uh, certain discipline from, from, from my parents for it. So I had the ingenious idea of, uh, in my fifth grade handwriting, signing my mother's name to the note. This, this was a flawless plan. No way that it would be found out whatsoever. Um, so, I signed my mother's name to uh, the note. It was somewhere around 12 or 1 a.m. that night. And uh, I turned the note in to my, my teacher, and she immediately looked with skepticism. Wise as I was, I said, she signed it in the car knowing that that would explain away any, any bumpiness in the handwriting. So, uh, my teacher said nothing. Um, she simply, she said, thank you, uh, go have a seat, and went, went away. I, I didn't know where for the moment. And um, I'm sitting there, and my friend even asked me, um, did your mom sign, sign the slip? And I said, well, of course she did. And... Um, I'm trying to convince everybody, can't make, let there be any witnesses or anything like that. And so a little while goes by, and the, this quiet of our classroom is suddenly interrupted uh, when a voice comes over the intercom. Would you please send Brian McCullough to the office? This is surely some other Brian McCullough. But I got, I got that, all, all of the color drained out of my face because I knew that uh, my scheme had been found out. I, was, I had been summoned to the office. Maybe some of you have experienced uh, something similar to that. I know you've probably never committed forgery in your life. Um, 
but you've been summoned somewhere. You think maybe about, uh, maybe about someone in a kingdom being summoned to come before a king. And what emotion might fill your heart in that moment? Maybe your knees would start knocking together. You think, what's about to happen to me? Well, as we think about uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21, we are, we're looking at a summons to come before a king and that king's response to that summons, to those who come before him. Remember that as we get to this point in Matthew's Gospel, what, what just happened? Do you, do you remember from last week? Jesus had, had sort of, from the law and prophets, He had shown how the Pharisees had no idea what they were talking about. It, it's, it was as though they'd never read the Bible for themselves. And maybe they hadn't. And they were so humiliated in this moment that they went out of the synagogue and they began to plan Jesus' destruction. Well, how did Jesus respond to that moment? He withdrew from that place to thwart their plan. And it wasn't because He was afraid of them. It wasn't because Jesus was fearful. Jesus went out of that place because it wasn't yet the time appointed for His death. Remember that Jesus died offering Himself. He said, no one takes my life from me. I give it freely. So Jesus departed from their company. Why? Because no one would take His life from Him. He would lay it down Himself. Notice what happens in that moment. Large crowds continued to follow Him. Isn't that an amazing thing? Think about that just for a moment. That here we have the Christ whose life is threatened. And perhaps the people observing their own religious leaders planning for the destruction of the Christ. And yet what did they do? They continued to follow Him. They continued to follow Him. Even though wicked men sought to extinguish Christ's ministry, what happened? It shined brighter. And I appreciate what John Calvin says here in his commentary about this. He said, at the same time, it deserves our attention that when wicked men do their utmost to extinguish the glory of God, they are so far from gaining their wish that on the contrary, God turns their rebellious designs in an opposite direction. Though Christ withdrew from a populous district, yet in this very concealment, His glory continues to shine and even bursts forth magnificently into its full splendor. I think that's something that we need to be reminded of. And we're going to end this morning on the reflection that Christ's purpose is to bring justice to victory. You need to hear that. You need to be reminded in seasons like the one we are enduring right now where we're going to the grocery store and buying eggs, you've probably never had to pay so much for them. 
and you look at pole upon pole that seeks to discourage you and tell you that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is being extinguished, you need to be reminded, and I need to be reminded, that the harder wicked men fight against the kingdom of Christ, the brighter its glory shines. Why? Because the more brilliantly the diamond shines from the rough of its surroundings, the more dedicated you are to living for the glory of Jesus Christ, the more glorious does His uh, brilliance shine out in a wicked culture. Amid these events, in Matthew chapter 12, He invites us, almost as though it's just an interruption here, He's saying, let me make a comment to you. I want to show you something, dear reader. I want to draw your attention to the fact that in this moment, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah. And what we learn from this passage as we consider Isaiah 42 is this. It is God's will for you to receive Christ as He is, knowing that He will receive you as you are. Why? So that He may impart to you hope. It is God's will for you to receive Christ as He is, knowing that He will receive you as you are, so that He can give you hope. That's what we learn from Isaiah 42, quoted in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. We're going to take this up in four points. We're going to look at Christ's person. We're going to look at Christ's power. We are going to look at His pity. And we're going to look at His purpose. So let's begin this morning by looking at verse 18 and considering Christ's person. Notice what Matthew, quoting from Isaiah 42 here, has to say about Jesus' person. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The first thing that we notice about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is chosen. He is, a, he is an elect son. The first thing that we notice that, that Matthew brings out from Isaiah is that our redemption by the incarnate Christ is God's plan. That is so important to understand. God chose Christ as the one who would serve Him to bring about your redemption. This was God's choice. God's determination. It isn't a response. It isn't a plan B by God to the circumstances of our day. It is God's provision. He chose the Christ to set Him forth as His Lamb to satisfy for sins. And so we notice as well that as God's elect Son... Christ was given a mission. His mission was in service to God as His Father. Who is He? My servant. My servant. 
Notice, not the servant of mankind fundamentally. He is the servant of God. And so as you observe Him going about His mission, what is He doing? He is serving the pleasure of His Father. And everything that He does, He is serving His Father. In taking the leper into His embrace, what is He doing? Serving His Father. In chastising the Pharisees, what is Christ doing? Serving His Father. He is the choice servant. But we notice as well, He's not just the elect servant. He is beloved, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. These are kind of rare words in the Scriptures. My soul is well pleased with Him. But during Jesus' ministry, I want you to notice something. We see them over and over again. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, do you remember what happened there? Jesus had come down to a man named John the Baptizer. And John tried to prevent him from being baptized. Do you remember? But Jesus said to him, permit it at this time to fulfill all righteousness. And so John baptized Jesus, and as they are walking up out of the water, they beheld the heavens split open and a voice descending. And do you remember what the voice said? It said this, This is my beloved Son. And so one of the primary things that the Father would have you know about this man Jesus is that He loves Him. It's repeated here from Isaiah chapter 12. And then it's repeated again in Matthew chapter 17. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, it says, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So we find that even though Jesus in His incarnation as the God-man is serving the will of the Father, He is doing so at the pleasure of the Father. This is not an argument between Father and Son of God the Father saying, I want to condemn them. And the Son saying, no, please forgive them. In everything that Christ does, He is exhibiting the will of the Father. His will is the Father's will. There is a perfect agreement. God has appointed and He loves His Son's ministry. Loves it. So one thing that we ought to be assured of here, one thing that you ought to be assured of is, is this. That through faith, it is this Christ to whom you have been united. This Christ. Through faith, the Holy Spirit melds you with Him and makes you one with Him so that where He is seated, right now, you are seated with Him. And do you know what that means? That these words spoken by the Father over His Son now are spoken over you. 
In Christ now, the Father says of you, individual you, with you I am well pleased. And, and what's the response from us? What? Me? Me who have just been on my knees confessing my sin? Yes, the Father would have you know, with you I am well pleased. Not because of anything that you have done, but because you are in my Son. You are covered by the umbrella of my love for my Son. You inherit it. Yes. Yes, there was a time There was a time in your life where Psalm 5 and Psalm 11 were true. Which says that your soul hates the wicked. Now, in Christ, you are transferred from the wrath of God to the love and the pleasure of God. This is what you've been given. This is the divine gift that has been given to you so that we can read in in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 19 for this reason I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you listen now being Rooted and grounded in love. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. A few minutes ago, did you notice that we... In reading Deuteronomy chapter 5, we read the Ten Commandments. And did you notice that in those commandments, God repeatedly drew His people back to think of the deliverance He'd given to them? You see, those commandments were never given to God's people as a way for them to gain God's love. They were a way for them to love Him back. Rooted and grounded, first of all, in knowing His love for them. So we see that Christ's person, who is He? He is a chosen servant, chosen by God, set apart for this work. And He is beloved of God. The second thing that we find about the Lord Jesus Christ is that He has given power in verses 18-19. to We read there, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. We are familiar, I think, with the fact that when we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. He works in our hearts. And and we know that the Holy Spirit continues to work in our hearts. He He teaches us the things of God. He is with you when you read your Bible. He enlightens your eyes. He helps you to understand, and and not only to understand, but to apply, to implement God's Word into your life. 
to be obedient to the Lord. But do you think of the Lord Jesus Christ as being given the Holy Spirit as well? Well, this is how the Scriptures describe Him to us. I will put My Spirit upon you. We're familiar with this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, as we go back to the, to the baptism of Christ. The Holy Spirit does what? Descends down upon Him. Well, what does this mean for us? That the Spirit is upon Christ. Well, He has, be, he has given power to proclaim the wisdom of God. I want you to turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's begin reading in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So what we're being taught here is that the human Christ, or Christ in His humanity, received the Spirit of God who taught Him the things of God. Enabled Him to proclaim them clearly. Now, this is going to become very important in just a moment. Because next week we're going to consider blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, we see that Christ is given the Holy Spirit. And this is why the Scriptures define Him as our prophet. He is the one who proclaims to us the things of God. This is why the Scriptures describe Christ as holding the office of a husband to us as a church. Why? Because He teaches us wisdom. We sit at His feet as our husband and He washes us in the pure water of the Word. Why? Because He's anointed with the Holy Spirit to do that. As a faithful husband, His office is to impart wisdom to us. But we see another thing about His power. Notice how He exercises it. If you and I had this sort of power, we might be tempted to flex our muscles to go out and say, look what I can do. But Jesus isn't that kind. Verse 19, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. So that's a little bit ironic, isn't it? On the one hand, He's He's equipped by the Holy Spirit perfectly to know the things of God and proclaim them, and yet we find that He's not one who cries aloud or makes His voice known in the streets. And we're reminded here throughout this passage, we're reminded of the lowly and the humble nature of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Equipped with this power, the result in Him is a lowliness. Isn't that interesting? 
We see it all the way from His birth to His death. Remember, His birth was, was not a moment at which multitudes gathered to Him. He was lowly in a manger. We think of His death. Where there on the cross, He was virtually alone. No one to hold His hand. No one to comfort Him. Even crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we learn by this fact that he will not quarrel or cry aloud is the fact that he doesn't go out and beat the bushes to obtain followers for himself. He doesn't have to do that. Because he is laboring under the, the power and the equipping of the Holy Spirit, he fully entrusts himself to his Father to cause his ministry to bear fruit. God brought them to Him. As I was thinking about this, I thought about another historic moment in Scripture that we were studying on Wednesday nights recently. We were looking at the story of Noah. And do you remember what this, what the, uh, in Genesis chapter 6, do you know how the animals came to Noah? He, two by two? He, he didn't, that's right, yeah, uh, gold star, he didn't, he, but do you know, he didn't have to go out with a, a fife or bagpipes and summon the animals to himself. Remember what the Scriptures say. That when these, when these animals come, came to Noah uh, for safety, it says this, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Now this part. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. You see, God summoned the animals, and heeding that summons, they came to Noah, entered the ark for safety. And this is the same thing with Christ. He doesn't go out and have to beat the bushes. He preaches the word, but he trusts his Father to bring to him to summon all whom he would have. This is what this means. He doesn't have to quarrel. He doesn't have to belabor the Pharisees. He doesn't have to take them by the collar and say, come back in here and let's finish this conversation. He trusts his Father to cause his ministry to bear fruit because what? He trusts this, that all whom my Father calls will come to me. This is how he labors under the power of the Holy Spirit. Think for just a minute. You know that um, if you're president of the United States, you don't go anywhere without your press secretary. Someone to tell everybody how to think about everything that you just said and did. To clean everything up. Your press secretary answers questions and tells you the proper interpretation of the events of the day. You've got a personal representative, an agent, to help you. But Christ, 
in his lowliness does not require this. God, his Father, works in the world to bring men to Christ. It is God who issues the summons throughout the world, drawing men to Christ. We don't delight in Jesus because of clever arguments. And and this was Paul's point when he went to Corinth. He said, guys, if you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, or verse 2, he said, if you think about how I came to Corinth, I didn't come to you with clever words. In fact, you probably would look at me and say, who would listen to this guy? And the reason for that is I didn't want you to trust in clever words. You trust in the power of God, emulating the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We don't delight in Christ because of clever arguments. In some, in some ways, we remember that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We delight in Christ because of the work of God's Spirit who rested upon Christ, who led Him all the way, and who draws men to Him. So there's the summons. It is the Father working through Christ giving you the Spirit who draws you to Christ. But how will Jesus respond to you? How will Jesus respond to you when you come? When you answer that summons, and in your mind, maybe you're like Christian at at the opening of Pilgrim's Progress, and you've got this great burden on your back, and that burden represents the weight of sin on your shoulders. And you think about that. That's, and you think, that's all that I have to bring him. These silly, stupid sins that I committed in my teenage years. These wretched things that I've done in my adult life. How will he receive me? How could he possibly receive me? Well, the scriptures teach us that He will receive you with pity. Notice what we read in verse 20. A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not quench. I wonder if maybe these are some of the most precious words that we read about the personality of our Lord. A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. A bruised reed, if you think of it, that word bruised, it it could also mean crushed. Maybe some of you take um, certain flowers and you, you crush them up to release their perfume. But maybe you also think of another another circumstance of crushing in the scripture. You know that after Adam's fall, we all live under the crushing weight of sin. And I think that that's what this reference means. That's what this illustration is. It is the picture of a bruised, crushed man. The man who all the days of his life has labored under the crushing weight of sin. The yoke of his own sin. Laboring under the oppression of the curse 
that we inherit because of Adam's sin. That's what he's talking about. And when you come to Him broken on your knees, do you understand that Christ will not greet you by breaking you further? That's not His intent. He greets you with pity. He goes on and says He will not smother the smoldering wick. And, and what this means in, in, in the context of Isaiah is that they would, they would take flax and which they would weave into linen and sometimes they would make garments out of this flax material. But they would also take that flax and you think of your oil lamps that have a wick that you turn. They would take that flax and use it as wicks in their lamp. So what, what's happening with a smoldering wick? It's giving off this little wisp of smoke. Why? Because its life is almost extinguished. It has run its course. It has given off its light. It doesn't have any heat left. It is about to die. And it's about to go out and be discarded. This is the picture of one whose life is nearly gone. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt yourself in the position that, that life is almost not worth living for me anymore? Hopeless. In despair. I am a smoldering wick about to go out. I've run my course. I've lived my life. I've given off my heat. I've given off my light. I'm ready to go out. Well, if you sense the weight of sin that like a snuffer is ready to put you out, what you should know is that Christ is always willing to receive you and He won't put you out. It is Christ's will serving to the pleasure of His Father under the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me to reignite you. To remind you of your purpose of living to the glory of God. To fan what's left into a brilliant flame again. And not only that, but to extend the life of your wick. Why? Because now He is the wick that lives within you. It is His strength that lives within you who enables you to bear up under the load of sin. Come to Christ and it is His pleasure to relieve you. Lastly, we see the purpose of Christ. We've seen His person, His power, and His pity. And now we see His purpose. Verse 20 and 21. Until He brings justice to victory and in His name, the Gentiles will hope. One of the things that you should be utterly convinced of is that when God calls you to the Lord Jesus Christ, He calls you to the victorious side. Not because you and I have power to bring the kingdom of Christ to bear in this world, but because His purpose is certain. You see, He 
brings victory to justice. In, in its original context, in Isaiah chapter 41 and 42, what's happening there is that God is summoning the Gentiles. And he's saying, bring your gods and let's put them on trial. And he tries all the gods of the Gentiles. And they have no hope. He judges them all. But what they do is the Gentile nations set their gods aside and they embrace Christ who is the hope for the entire world. Look with me for a second at Isaiah chapter 2. I want you to turn in your Bible there. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And notice what's going to happen. And many peoples and, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His way. Why? Because He's our great husband. The one who is anointed with the Spirit to declare to us justice. And that we may walk in His paths. You see, what the Scripture is saying is, what happens in the latter days? What happens? The mountain of the Lord is shattered, broken, rubble, defeated by wickedness. Wicked men tear it down. No. The mountain of the Lord is established as the highest of the mountains. And what happens? Nations stream to it. They are summoned by God and they come to Mount Zion. And what do they find there? They find a Christ who shows them pity. This is a declaration that Christ will bring a certain victory. That the victory and advance of His kingdom, it doesn't depend on us. It is wholly dependent upon Him. And this is the good news that you and I need to hear today. That when God summons us to Christ, He meets us with pity, not with dread, not with terror, and receives us into a victorious kingdom. And this is a declaration of repentance. That God will bring the nations to Christ, that they will repent, and they will lay their idols in the dust. This was powerfully demonstrated in Thessalonica. When the people set aside their false idols to embrace the living and the true God. It is the will of God that you should receive Christ as He is, knowing that He receives you as you are so that He might give you hope. The incarnate Lord Jesus was chosen of God and beloved by Him. He was appointed by God to declare His saving will to the world. 
And he was filled with the Spirit for this purpose. And all those whom God draws to Christ will be met with love and pity beyond measure. More than that, you will be filled with hope for a victorious future. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are wonderful treasures that Christ Himself is a wonderful treasure. Father, how we pray that You would so equip us with Your Spirit that we would embrace Christ, that we would dedicate ourselves to Him, that we would live for Him out of gratitude and thankfulness, and that we would bless Your name all the days of our lives. We pray in His name. Amen.